We're concluding our time in Isaiah. We've spent two months here and return to Romans next Sunday for our fifth and final section of Romans through the summer. The title of this series in Isaiah is Clear Cut, and that's a play on the stump imagery. You might remember Isaiah using Isaiah chapter 6, where we began in the first uh, part of March. And also in chapter 11, that stump imagery is there also. And now in chapter 61, here to conclude, look at what happens to the stumps. Verse 3, oaks of righteousness. They become oaks again. How does that happen? Well, the gospel according to Isaiah anticipated Jesus' way, Jesus' truth, Jesus' life, and even his death and resurrection, as we saw last week from Isaiah 53, Isaiah preached of Jesus' coming that nothing would be right ultimately until he righted it. Isaiah actually saw Jesus back in his vision in the temple, Isaiah chapter 6, if you recall that, where we were last month. And then now, concluding in Isaiah 61, Jesus sees himself in Isaiah. Let me give you a couple of New Testament texts to fill out what I'm saying here. Remembering back to Isaiah 6 where we started, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now we're told in the Gospel of John that Isaiah saw Jesus. I read this to you back when we were in Isaiah 6. This is just John 12. Just, just listen. He quotes Isaiah, John does, about blinding their eyes, hardening their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, turn, and I would heal them. And the reason that Jesus quotes Isaiah, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, him being Jesus in that context. Isaiah saw Jesus in his vision, Isaiah 6, and then when you get to Isaiah 61, it's also clear from the New Testament that Jesus saw himself in Isaiah's vision of coming fullness here in chapter 61. Let me read you a selection from Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, here's chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The gospel according to Isaiah. Jesus preached it 800 years after Isaiah preached it. In chapter 6, where we began, we saw that Isaiah was commissioned to go and preach good news. Jesus preached and applied this good news in chapter 61 to himself. People call Jesus a miracle worker. We're used to that. They call him a great teacher. He was all of that, but he was primarily a preacher of the gospel. The gospel meaning good news. And the good news in our case is that God is inclined to no longer hold our sins over us and to do something about our sorrows. Also, if we place 
ourselves under the blood of Jesus. And so a preacher is one who proclaims. And that's the language we get in Isaiah 61, isn't it? He proclaims, he proclaims, he proclaims all through Isaiah 61 here. A preacher is someone who proclaims whether the listeners receive it or not. The task of the preacher is still to proclaim, to announce, to herald, to give voice to the word of of God. Isaiah was sent as a preacher to people who would not listen to him. We see that both in Isaiah and also in the John passage that I reminded you of. But Jesus also was sent to people who ultimately would not listen to him, would reject his message. He had this in common with Isaiah. In fact, the very dynamic of not being listened to plays out there in Luke chapter 4. Let me read the rest of the context to you. I just read you Luke chapter 4. He comes to, Na- comes to Nazareth, his, his hometown. He's handed the, the, the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. He, he reads Isaiah 61 and then the rest of the story. All spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, he was sent to a Gentile. He goes on, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, Elijah's successor, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath Note the contrast. He read Isaiah 61. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They go, well, this, what, how did he get so well spoken? What a marvelous thing this is for, for the, the, this young man from Nazareth to be such a, a great preacher. But then he elaborates, and all in the synagogue are filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. That's Luke chapter 4, the preaching of Isaiah 61, Jesus applying it to himself there in Luke chapter 4. And when Jesus preached Isaiah 61, as recorded there in Luke 4, he left off the second part of Isaiah 61, verse 2. Looking at Isaiah 61, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus full stopped that right there, scrolled Rolled back up, handed to the attendant. How does verse 2 go on in Isaiah 61? And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion. Beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And the rest of it there in verse 3 that we'll look at. If you compare Luke 4.19 and Isaiah 61.2, you'll see Jesus stopped reading the scroll right at the point where the vengeance of God is mentioned here in verse 2, but as you hear in Luke 4 that I just read to you, even with leaving that part out, the judgment part, they still turned on Jesus. They liked hearing him preach verse 1 of Isaiah 61, all the the things that the anointed one of God would, would do, but then on his elaborating on it that, that God's people have frequently rejected God's messengers, 
They turned on him right then and there and tried to kill him. What's going on? Prophets didn't come to God's people just threatening judgment. If that's all that prophets did, it would be easy to dismiss them as the rantings of cranks. Prophets came on the scene to call God's people back to what they already knew. In fact, to call God's people back to seeing themselves as people in the world on whom God has a claim. And what we see in the prophets and in Jesus' own prophetic ministry, people don't want that. It's not just the message of judgment we reject. It's God making any claim on us. That's why even a winsome witness can still be opposed, even persecuted. Jesus was what Alan Noble in his book calls a disruptive witness. He disrupted the claim on ourselves that we make before God. The people would have welcomed a message that God was going to take immediate vengeance on enemies like the Romans. That's what they wanted their Messiah to do, chase out the Romans, give us back our sovereignty, take us back into the time when David and Solomon reigned and nobody pushed Israel around. But as it turns out, God's enemies had become his own people. And so Jesus shows up very much in the, in the spirit and, and message of Isaiah preaching to them about this. And yet he didn't include the last part of verse 2 when he preached Isaiah 61 in his hometown synagogue. He didn't say the day of vengeance of our God. He sat down before reading that, and that's because it wasn't yet the day of vengeance. That will come. Prophecies have near and far fulfillments. I've tried to tell you about that a few times already in this series. There will be a day when God will take vengeance, but it was not that day at Jesus' first coming. When Jesus read from Isaiah 61 in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and, and applied it to himself, he was saying it's, it's the day of salvation. It's the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus spoke frequently of God's judgment. Frequently he spoke of God's judgment. But he preached good news that God hadn't dropped the curtain yet. He will at final judgment. That's when the play is over. In fact, next month in Isaiah or in Romans 12, we'll consider vengeance, actually. There's an exhortation in Romans 12 about not taking vengeance ourselves, but leaving that for the Lord. But looking at Isaiah 61, notice to whom the gospel, according to Isaiah, is proclaimed. It is proclaimed to those who suffer in a variety of ways. You see that in the text, Isaiah 61? These are things, these suffered things we uh, have put upon us by others. They are things that we can put upon ourselves, both. We are always our own worst enemies in our sin. But we're also subject to the fallout of others' sins, sins generally in the world, sins in particular against us perhaps. But the gospel according to Isaiah, which Jesus preached, is directed at people who experience clear-cutting in all the ways listed here, people whose view of things is full of stumps. Look at the last line in, in, in verse 4, the, the devastations of many generations. He talks about the, the poor and the brokenhearted and the captives and those who are bound, some translations, those who are blind and, and those who mourn. The devastations of many generations. 
It's heavy. Now, life is not chaotic as that all the time. It's not devastations day in and day out for most of us. But the world is groaning. We talk about that often here. And Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the savior of a groaning world. He's uniquely qualified to be the savior of the suffering. The suffering get in Jesus a vision of fullness. Why is that important? Look again at verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The me would be Jesus. Jesus said so that I read to you from Luke chapter 4, verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the anointed one. I'm the one sent. I'm the one set apart, consecrated to a sacred mission. That is, the task of mine is to proclaim the grace of God and, and the redemption available to God's people by that grace. And he says, I'm, I, I'm going to grant those who mourn in Zion, verse 3, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, grieving, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Who gets to be called oaks of righteousness? Well, look back up in verse 1. I've been anointed to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn in Zion. Who gets to be called oaks of righteousness? Verse 3, those listed above it. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who are bound or blind, depending on the rendering one goes with. And what these have in common... These that he lists here in verse 1 that he's been sent to, what the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who are bound will go with that rendering. What they have in common is that they're each one suffering. The causes and effects of suffering may differ. The intensities and durations of suffering may differ. But the experience of suffering is similar across the board because to suffer is to be in lack. It's to lack something. The poor lack dignity and resources and security. The brokenhearted lack peace and hope. The captives lack freedom. Those who are bound uh, lack a, a clear conscience. The gospel, according to Isaiah, presents to those suffering in these conditions of life a vision of fullness found in Jesus, the one sent to those in these conditions, a vision of fullness for those who lack. Late last year, Eugene Peterson died. He was in his early 80s. Great influence uh, on me has uh, formed a lot of my sense of, of what pastoring is about. Some of you uh, know Eugene Peterson immediately as the translator of the message version of the Bible. During his funeral, his son Leif said his father had only one sermon. This is the funeral message. His son is giving it. And he said for all his books and his long pastor, he spent 29 years in, in one church. And then he went back to the academy up in Vancouver. And, and he, he had one message. And his son Leif said, uh, my dad wove that message all through his writings, his 40-some-odd books, his preaching, 
He even took it upstairs at night into Leif's room when he was a child and spoke it over his son as he, as he lay in his bed. And the message was this, four sentences. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. I love that. Four sentences. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. Eugene Peterson's son said his father had been speaking that message into his heart for all 50 years of his life. Now, maybe that catches me as it does because I turned 50 last month and just experienced my dad dying two days later last month, a a man, my dad, who spoke God's grace and glory over my life since I was a kid. But if you want to put Isaiah 61, these, just these four verses into four sentences, if you want to put the vision of fullness here into four sentences, I, I don't think we'd do any better than those four. And in fact, I do want to do that. I do want to put the vision of fullness here in Isaiah 61 into those four sentences, two at a time. So we'll take a, a, a first and a second as we often do. If you're taking notes, Let me plug these four sentences, two at a time, into Isaiah 61, and then we'll call it a finished series. We'll think first about how how we know from Isaiah 61 that God loves us and that God is on our side. And then second, how we know from Isaiah 61 that he is coming after us and that he is relentless. First, how do we know from Isaiah 61 that God loves us and is on our side? Well, we know it through this word instead in verse 3. Look at the word instead. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, verse 3, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Instead is is an exchange word. This for that. In this context, it's a gospel word. In place of what we have or expect to have, here is something else. Something else that would not come to us except for the love of God. The love that God has for us. It's the only reason God would be compelled to to do this for us in our particular case. His being on our side. His, His bringing us over to his side. His being for us. Instead of ashes, beauty. Instead of mourning, gladness. Instead of a faint or heavy spirit, praise. The things that can burn our house down around us, accusations, vocational ruin, this is the stuff of ashes. The things that bowl us over like health reversals, deaths, various losses, this is mourning, grieving. And the things that weigh us down like loneliness or or having to wait out your hope before you see it fulfilled. This is a, a faint or a heavy spirit. The promise of God to us in Scripture is not that he'll keep us from any and all of these kinds of things always. He often does keep us from such things. But the promise of God to us is that we are kept by him in these conditions of life. We are met and preserved by him. We are resourced by him for these kinds of things suffered, even if we bring them on ourselves. I read a book not long ago by a minister in Birmingham, uh, written 
uh, after his, um, his three-year-old son died in his sleep suddenly one night. They went in in the morning and the child was dead. Cameron Cole is the minister's name. His book is entitled, Therefore I Have Hope. And he writes about what he calls your worst, capital W, your worst thing, the worst thing you could imagine, the thing you, you thought would not happen to you, and there it is. And he, he talks throughout the book about when we're in our worst, capital W. The subtitle of the book is 12 Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem in Tragedy. In one chapter, he talks at length about when well-intentioned people said things to him or as he heard them say to others, like, God had nothing to do with this loss. And he said he understands the reflex, but we, we don't have to try to preserve God's goodness at the expense of his control. It's not one or the other, it's both. He said, I listened to the podcast of a parent who had tragically lost a young child through an accidental death, the same thing my wife and I had gone through. She said that her pastor reminded her that God is not a grand puppeteer sitting in heaven orchestrating all the events of the world. But as a friend, let me sit down with you and tell you the immediately hard but ultimately hopeful truth about your worst, capital W. God did and does have something to do with your tragedy. I know this sounds like a cruel statement, but stay with me. There is hope in the end. There is both a fundamental and a practical reason why the notion of God's limited involvement in suffering breeds harm and hopelessness. Let me tell you what I hear when people say, God didn't have anything to do with this. I hear God's hands are tied. God took his eyes off the road when your worst occurred. Satan is just as great, mighty, and sovereign as God. God just isn't that powerful. He's impotent. God is not in control. God is weak. He says none of these statements resembles the God of the Bible. The witness of Scripture testifies to a God who remains sovereign in every moment. A story my mentor, Reverend Frank Limehouse, labeled as the most significant moment in his early ministry career illustrates why the sovereignty of God is so instrumental in maintaining hope during the season of your worst nightmare. As a seminary student, Frank was shadowing a hospital chaplain when they were called to a room where a woman's son had been pronounced dead after a tragic car accident. The woman lamented over and over again, why did God do this to me? Why did God do this to me? The chaplain, trying to be helpful, said, ma'am, God didn't have anything to do with your son's death. To this statement, the, the wailing woman pointedly looked the chaplain in the eyes and said, don't you take away the only hope that I have. Behind the grieving mother's remark lies the hope that the sovereignty of God enables. If God is not fully sovereign in your suffering, then you cannot trust that he is fully in control of your healing and recovery. If God's hands are tied when the worst enters your life, then maybe his powers are also limited in helping you. The gospel according to Isaiah is that God is not limited in his help. These conditions of life in verse 1, they can go quite deep. They can affect us throughout life. But the gospel, according to Isaiah, is that stumps can again become trees, oaks of righteousness. The gospel, according to Isaiah, is not that God always keeps us from troubles and sufferings we don't want to personally know in a fallen world, but that he meets us in them personally with resources that he has. See, the garment of praise, the instead language it's glorious, but it can also be a little bit misleading because the garment of praise does not replace a faint or, or heavy spirit. It, it goes on over it. 
the oil of gladness doesn't replace mourning and, and grieving. There, there'll be a hundred things you'll, you'll mourn and grieve in your life. The, the oil of gladness is poured out over it in ways the people of God have been testifying to for centuries in real experience. Same with the beautiful headdress. You know what it goes on? It goes on the head on which the ashes were placed. They did that back then to, to depict sorrow and grief and and, and your head may know those ashes again and again and again. Cameron Cole himself in his epilogue writes this. Three months after Cam died, we learned that we were unexpectedly pregnant. Getting pregnant during a time of such dark misery was the last thing we intended to do. As the first trimester concluded, we discovered this new baby was a boy. In mid-November, at 1.30 a.m., Lauren nudged me and announced that her water had broken. We raced to the hospital. There was no time for an epidural. Our third child and second son, William Hutchins Cole IV, was born 42 minutes after Lauren's water broke, 17 minutes after admission to the hospital. On November 13th, 2013, we had buried our precious son, Cam. On November 13th, 2014, the one-year anniversary of Cam's funeral, God brought new life into our family. God is real, God is good, Christ reigns forever. Now, he's been saying that ever since the worst thing happened. Throughout his year of loss, not just because things turned out that way, things turning out that way did not replace the son that he lost. But God has ways and means of sharing himself with us in our worst, capital W, giving us his best, and his best always comes to us through the person and work of his son. If you know his son, you know the comfort there can be when our worst, capital W, arrives. Comfort in practice, see there in verse 2 where he says to, to comfort all who mourn. Last line in verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. Comfort, I, I'm convinced, is more about drawing upon the resources God makes available to us in suffering than it is about emotional reassurance. And, and I think that, I, I say that not because emotional reassurance is bad, but because what we do in emotional reassurance is almost always repeat to ourselves until we believe it, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, it has to get better. I know it'll get better. And it may not get better. But by God's grace, we somehow get better in the midst of these hard things that we have to go through. God loves you. God is on your side. And now the second two sentences. He's coming after you. He is relentless. The other consideration, these four sentences I'm using to summarize the message here, the gospel according to Isaiah from Isaiah 61, these second two sentences now, very briefly, how do we know from Isaiah 61 that he's coming after us and that he is relentless? I like the word relentless applied to God. I'd even call it an attribute of God, his relentlessness. All the people addressed in verses 1 and 2, look at the text. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who are bound, those who are mourned. None of them are easy to get to in those conditions. It's not easy to get to the people and persuade and convince them of something better when they're in these kinds of circumstances. Not easy at all. These circumstances are loud. They blare. 
and they go deep. And so God sending Jesus to proclaim to us his good graces requires he be relentless, requires he come after us, the conditions themselves. It's it's not that he chases us around. God doesn't chase, but he does come after us. It's the real-time expression of his faithfulness. And he is relentless in, in getting his message through, a message that always centers on how good his son is. Regardless of what is going on in our personal experience, his son remains good. He sent his son not on a fool's errand for us, but on a a rescue and recovery mission. We got lost. We're good at that. He's good at finding whomever he seeks. And those he seeks, he keeps. The way I think of this of his relentlessness is um, like how Dennis Covington, he's an Alabama journalist, remembers his father, the way his father would get him to come home when he was a boy down by the, the neighborhood lake playing. Dennis Covington's words, it's afternoon at the lake. The turtles are moving closer to the shore. The surface of the water is undisturbed, an expanse of smooth gray slate. Most of the children in my neighborhood are called home for supper by their mothers who open the doors, wipe their hands on their aprons, and yell, Willie or Joe or Ray. Either that or they use a bell bolted to the door frame and loud enough to start the dogs barking in backyards all along the street. But I was always called home by my father. And he didn't do it in the customary way. He walked down the alley all the way to the lake. If I was close, I could hear his shoes on the gravel before he came into sight. If I was far, I would see him across the surface of the water, emerging out of shadows into the gray light. He would stand with his hands in his pockets of his windbreaker while he looked for me. This is how he got me to come home. He always came to the place I was before he called my name. That's what we have in our Savior. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. We're grateful that we have that in you, Lord Jesus, one who walks into our conditions. You don't promise us that you'll keep us from those conditions, but you do tell us that you'll meet us in them with yourself and the goodness of who you are. And we're grateful for that. Thank you for preaching the gospel of Isaiah and for uh, doing for us what uh, we could not do for ourselves. We were were in the way of your vengeance. Jesus would um, take that for us so that we would not have to endure that at the day upon which it arrives. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand before you as those who have, have been cleared and have been cleansed of all the things that separate us from you. And now help us to believe it. Lord, we, uh, we struggle with unbelief. We are at times believing unbelievers. And we don't want that to be uh, the effect we have on the world. We, we want to be people who are more than ever convinced of the goodness of God to us in Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that you share this with us over and over and over again throughout 
the pages of your word. We thank you for uh, all the ways that you've, you've provided for us, our deepest needs, the hardest spaces and places we are. We praise you, Lord, and pray that you gain glory for yourself through whatever effects of this message that your spirit works into lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.